Season 2, Episode 6 of The Modern Extractor. This podcast focuses on the processes, equipment, and science found in a cannabis extraction laboratory. I'm your host, Jason Showard, and I work professionally in the cannabis extraction field. Here in Season 2, we're focusing on hydrocarbon extraction and post-processing, with each episode digging deep into a particular stage in that process. The shows are released in an order that follows the workflow through a lab as material makes its way from cultivar to concentrate. Last season, we worked our way through an ethanol extraction lab, starting with biomass and following it all the way through to distillate and isolate. This season, we're doing the same, but with hydrocarbon extraction and all the highly sought-after craft concentrates that this style can produce. Last week, we talked to Vaughn Hartung, the founder of Media Bros, about the use of CRC and filtration media in our extraction processes. We learned why we'd use it, how we'd use it, and why CRC is such a polarizing topic. In today's show, we'll be joined by Will Billy, the inventor of the famed Blue Sapphire THCA crystals. He's at the forefront of manipulating the molecules our hydrocarbon extraction will yield, so I'm very excited to have him join us for today's show, which I'm sure many of you have been waiting for. Today, we're going to go through extraction and finishing technique SOPs that will ensure we get the high-quality results we're looking for in our final products. So without any further ado, Will Billy, founder and CEO of Will Billy Productions and inventor of the Blue Sapphire THCA Crystals. Welcome to the Modern Extractor. Good to be on the show, man. How are you doing? Pretty good, pretty good. Where, uh, where are you calling in from today? I just flew back into Denver. My home property is in Denver uh, here downtown. Um, been traveling for the entire week, so it's nice to be home. Well, I appreciate you, you making time for me. I was just in Denver a couple of weeks ago and uh, talking to you today from my home studio here in Los Angeles. Nice. Yeah. So uh, let's let's talk a little bit about your start into the cannabis industry and, and what your path was like to getting into extraction. Um, I could probably start with just the path into the extraction before I got into the industry because okay. um, I was doing extraction probably well before the industry was even legal here in Colorado. Um, my older siblings, I have a couple older brothers who are 10, 15 years older than me. Um, we're basically doing hash oil and honey oil back in like 2008, 2009. Um, when I was like 12 years old, 13 years old, and I walked in on them doing it and they brought me in on their operation, basically got me involved in, uh, some of the cooler aspects of the science side of things. Um, back then it was, you know, open blasting, ethanol washing, uh, really just crude, nasty extracts, but it was like the start of everybody starting to get into concentrates and hash and wanting to extract the, you know, cannabinoids from the plant itself. So it was a uh, real interesting to be around for that part. People were so super giddy in <laughs> those times about even like black wax and you know you get some super dark brown stuff and people would just be singing to the heavens like oh look at this and to watch it come so far now it's like yeah this is this is what i expected i remember uh, asking my brother i was like well if this is you know extracted cannabis like where does it go from here and he didn't have the answer for me and i didn't have the answer then but eventually we figured out it's better extracted cannabis yeah, absolutely. I remember uh, I remember the early days as well. It was a, a far cry from where it's come to now, uh, especially a far cry from the stuff that you're putting out right now. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, so if that's how it all began, uh, where are you now? What are you working on? Um, 
Right now, I am opening and starting my own lab operation in Oklahoma, um, Wilbilly Productions. Uh, basically, getting a fresh start out in Oklahoma. I've been in Colorado and Michigan for the last year or so. Um, I had the opportunity and ability to basically go off, start my brand and my company by myself as the independent owner and mostly the financial investor for all the things involved, um, which is something I've been wanting to do since I really got into the business in the first place. Having partners and investors is nice and I enjoy it, but doing things the right way is often more difficult when you have that. So having the chance to do this the right way, having the chance to build it from the scratch is something I'm pretty excited to do. Yeah, that's great. When you've got investors, there's a lot more, uh, a lot more of a push to be profitable. And I'm sure someone that is uh, an artist such as yourself w- doesn't want to sacrifice the quality in, in search of profit. Right. And when you're building plans and designing a business, um, you have to think about the long term of things. You may not make money in year one. You may not make money in year two. You got to plan for three, four years down the line when everything's starting to flow. Your production's going continuously. You've gotten over all the hiccups and you got to you got to be willing to get through that tough spot, which a lot of investors, unfortunately, are investing money that they probably shouldn't be investing um, and need investments back super fast. So I have the ability to take the time and have the funds available after everything I've been doing to know I'm going to have that tough spot and I'm ready to go through it. I'm prepared for it. So I'm excited to be able to actually do this right, get the lab built right, um, do the things I make been wanting to do in this industry since I got into it. Right on, man. That's exciting. Well, congratulations on that. Um, This season has been all about hydrocarbon extraction. Uh, Hydrocarbon is unique because of all the different final products you can create with it. Uh, I'm excited to have you specifically on today to talk about them since you're kind of on the forefront of manipulating all these molecules. Uh, Let's start with the basics. So tell us why you can create so many more final products with butane or hydrocarbon blends than with any of the other extraction solvents people are using out there. Generally, it's because of the lower boiling points that are available with hydrocarbon solvents. Um, You're actually able to preserve more of the terpenes, more of the THCA, less heat is involved. Um, It's generally a colder process. Uh, If you're using like ethanol or methanol, some people use hexane and heptane. Um, Those boiling points are well above the decarbing point of THCA and the melting point and extremely high for terpenes boiling points, um, some of the more volatile ones. So using hydrocarbons, using the lower boiling points, you're actually able to remove the solvent without removing the goods. Gotcha. So it's a temperature thing. More or less. Yeah. Um, And Also, with a hydrocarbon nonpolar solvent, your solubility for terpenes and THCA is going to be higher. Terpenes in themselves are hydrocarbons, so they actually um, become miscible with the hydrocarbon blend that you're using, whether it's butane or propane or some mixture blend. Um, So they get stripped with that really easily, comparative to an ethanol, which is polar, where it basically has to force off and kind of like a fractioning event. Um, all those terpenes and nonpolars. So using a nonpolar with nonpolar gives you a better yield off your extraction initially too. So you're using less solvent, 
getting more terpenes, getting more THCA, um, basically utilizing the science behind extraction in the first place. And you're leaving behind a lot of the undesirables that you wouldn't be leaving behind with something like an ethanol or methanol as well, I'd imagine. Exactly. Um, ethanol polars um, basically break down the microcellulose wall um, and the chloroplasts that contain the chlorophyll in the plant matter. And as soon as that breaks down, it actually starts to leak in um, to the ethanol and the polar products. This can happen too with uh, hydrocarbons. But because they're so cold, you're generally actually freezing that wall instead of breaking that wall. So you can actually have longer soak times, deeper extractions, and not pick up any of that color or those fats or those waxes because they stay solid on the plant matter instead of breaking down. Gotcha. Okay. So what are all the different final products that you can make with the hydrocarbons? Um. There's a, a long, long list with that one. Obviously, <laughs> yeah. the oldest ones are wax and shatter. Um, some of the newer stuff that's starting to come out, though, um, with the evolution of hydrocarbon extractions and things getting colder, people just doing the R&D, uh, batters and sugar sauces, diamonds and saws, high concentrate, full terpene extract, high cannabinoid, full spectrum extracts, um, basically a truer profile of the cannabis plant extracted versus some of the older, you know, things like just a basic wax or a shatter, which is more so just a crude resin at this point with how far we've gotten in extraction. Um, if you're still smoking basic wax or basic shatter, it's probably time to start asking for some better products because that's extremely easy to be made and you're probably overpaying for it already. All right. So, uh, so recently you kind of broke the internet by releasing a photo of your blue sapphire THCA diamonds. It dominated a lot of the conversation on Future 4200, some other forums, Instagram, and uh, all kinds of other cannabis publications. I've seen articles written about them at this point. Uh, so that said, are diamonds your specialty or do you produce all the different products that you just mentioned? So surprisingly enough, crystals are my specialty. Um, and it's been from the time I really started, uh, I was doing stupid shit. I was 12 years old, 13 years old, um, doing open blasting, but I was always able to get a basic kind of crystalline kind of wax going on. Um, while my brothers are getting, you know, black oil and super dark wax and, um, Basically, even with like ethanol extracts and things like that, I've always had uh, a very consistent crystallization process. And generally, that's because of I've always been using cold temperatures, always been a fan of uh, sub-zero temperatures and just the low, slow process. Um, back in the day, people were always, get it out as fast as you can, get it done in, you know, as fast as you can. And... I was slow and slow, which is kind of interesting because as I got more involved with the crystallization, I figured out you could do crystallization faster than you could do most other forms of extract. Okay. Uh, so before we get into specific finishing techniques uh, and how we make all this stuff, uh, let's talk equipment for a minute. I'd imagine that some of the more complicated finishes require more advanced equipment. So let's clarify what kind of hardware we're working with. Uh, give us a rundown of your preferred closed loop system and, uh, and what it looks like, what it's set up like. Paint us a little bit of a picture here. 
My preferred systems are a little big on the size factor. So a lot of people haven't actually had hands-on experience with them. Um, I prefer PX40s, um, Precision and PX40, the new systems, um, just because of the size and throughput that you can actually go through and the basic capabilities to be expanded upon. Um, they're extremely customizable. Um, it's a super, super basic system that's extremely cheap and honestly is a piece of shit until you can uh, fix it up a little bit. But the customization options on it are extremely similar to what you can find on a busy beast. But in my experience, you're paying, you know, a little bit less because you have to do all that art yourself. So um, my PX40, uh, basic PX40, I've actually added on about eight check valves um, to control my process and the spots I want to control it and to be able to stop where I want to stop it. Um, the general PX40 is a continuous flow. You go from butane through your columns into your collection. Um, with the customization I've included, basically I'm able to now soak into my columns, um, go into my D-Wax freeze column, go in through my CRC or my chromatography column, and then go into my collection reservoir. Gotcha. So it's a little bit of a, a tricked out system that your average user isn't going to have. Um, so let's say we're working with something a little bit more basic. Let's go through some SOPs to talk about how to get to all of the different concentrates that you named earlier. Um, let's you know start with something a little bit more basic, like a wax or a shatter. So basic wax SOP, um, I'm going to use just a basic five-pound system, um, basic closed-loop, no CRC, uh, one thing I do recommend for everybody who's ever, regardless of what your system is, get cold. Get your solvent as cold as possible. If you can't get to negative 40, you need to work on getting to negative 40 before you start extracting. Um, the reason for that being is the fats and the waxes and the cellulose wall actually will freeze at that point a little better than anything else, allowing you to do a longer soak time and capture more of those terpenes and cannabinoids. So if you don't have a negative 40 system, you know, a dry ice slurry in a open jacket, even putting it in a bucket with dry ice, um, your actual solvent tank can actually get your solvent down pretty cold. Um, but get it as cold as you possibly can. Um, that's regardless of whatever system you're using. Uh, I generally use a straight untamed mixture for my crude extraction, which is what I call my wax or my shatter, um, just because it's great for the profile it has lesser color upgrades versus a propane or an iso mix but i think it gives you a better end product more stability um better texture better taste so you're gonna freeze your biomass in a negative 40 sub-zero freezer for 24 hours prior to extraction this is to ensure that all your thca trichromes are bulging and all your cellulose walls are frozen before extraction and to lessen the load on the solvent when it touches the biomass. After freezing, pack your sock. Uh, generally, you want to use a 75 to 125 micron sock to actually pack your columns. A lot of people don't know this. Just like rosin bags, we now use socks to pack our biomass. That way we're no longer packing columns with sticks in our hands, and it's extremely more effective. Um, Basically, you can pack your whole five pound into a sock and just drop it directly into your material column. And from there, basically, you're 
expediting how fast the time is between your freezer and your material column. That way you're not losing any of that temperature. Because like I said, the cold is the most important part of hydrocarbon extraction. So pack your sock. Um, generally after you pack your sock, refreeze for another hour or so to re-bring it down to a nice temperature. Um, get your material ready to be packed. Uh, open up your material columns and have them ready to be loaded. Load your solvent into your solvent reservoir. So this is generally where I was talking about earlier. You wanna make sure your solvent and your chiller are capacity to negative 40 at least. Um, some people may not be able to do that and that's okay if it really you can't, but that's where you really wanna be. So uh, I generally have a chiller doing this work for me. So most people will have to figure out that part by themselves. Um, so get your solvent down to negative 40 and load your material column. Seal the material column with high pressure clamps and ensure that there is a nice gasket and any damage to nuts and bolts must be replaced immediately. After your solvent is down to negative 40, go ahead and release the swag lock check valve from your solvent reservoir into your material column. Depending on how much solvent you're using, you can determine by the PSI on your gauge. So if you're using a five pound system, you're gonna to wanna to go to about 50 pounds PSI for your solvent. Um, some systems have a solvent weight, that way you can actually weigh how much solvent's going in and through the system. Um, most do not though, and you just have to use the pressure gauge and basic uh, vapor pressure to determine how much solvent weight is going through your bottom mass. Um, when I run so cold, I generally like to run uh, 7 to 1 to 10 to 1 solvent to biomass. So generally uh, 10 to 1, um, 50 pounds for 5 pounds of biomass. Now, is this for something that is going to like continuously flow through or you're, you've got a valve closed down below the, the column, so you're, you're, you're putting it in to soak? Yeah, so basically your bottom uh, check valve will be closed. Um, soaking it up to about 50 PSI for the five pound system. Like I said, 10, seven to 10 times the amount of solvent to biomass for your system. Um, for the people who have different size systems or different capacities. Um, but right then and there, you're basically going to start chilling. Um, your biomass will already be frozen. Your solvent's already frozen. So at this point, you're basically creating a solvent soup in the biomass with the sock. And some people will say you can only, you know, soak for so long or you shouldn't soak for so long. I've done hour-long soaks and gotten clear material. I've done minute-long soaks and gotten black material. Um, a lot of that depends on the biomass that you're using, the age of it, um, how it was ground. You never want to use a grinder. You never want to actually break down the plant material because then you're breaking those chloroplast walls and allowing the access into the chlorophyll itself. So you want to have a really light, loose biomass uh, that's as fresh as possible to get the best color. But obviously, sometimes the access and availability, and sometimes even just the strain is just dark and there's nothing you can really do about it. And you just have to work through that part in the post-processing to get to your end products that you want. So that actually leads me to a, a little sidebar question here as far as material prep goes. Um, let's say, I mean, not everybody's going to have access to fresh frozen all the time, which is what everyone would love to extract from for the most part. Um, but let's say you've got some cured biomass that has not been ground up. What What is your go-to prep for that if there are some nugs in there? What's your approach to that? 
Um, go-to prep for it is basically as soon as you dry your material, you want to have it frozen. Um, just like fresh frozen, the longer you can keep it cold, the less it's going to degrade, the less the terpenes will become volatile and uh, strip off the plant material, and the less likely the cellulose walls are going to break down naturally. Um, and as the plant actually dries out and gets older, the chlorophyll will actually start leaking off the plant naturally, even if the cellulose walls don't break. So if you have some older material, even if you freeze it, you can still pull some chlorophyll just because it's old. So freezing it, um, as soon as it's dry, you want to have it in a freezer lock bag. That way nothing's escaping, nothing's getting into the bag. Um, dedicate a freezer just for marijuana. Don't put food in there, don't put drinks in there, don't put anything else in there. Just weed. And you can, I, I mean, I have some weed from a year and a half ago that's still blast almost white. <laughs> So it's just, if you take care of your material and store it properly, you can store it for a pretty long time. Gotcha. So regardless of the state it's in, when you get, when you get your hands on it, it's always better to put it on a, in a freezer immediately and packed correctly. Yeah. Even if it's, uh, you know, you know, it's old and it's been mistreated when you get it, that doesn't mean you can't treat it well once you get it. Gotcha. All right, so we're uh, we're we're running our material into the column. The the valve at the bottom of the column is closed, uh, and, and we're filling it up using the psi as a gauge to tell how much material we're putting in there. Yep. Um, depending on your system, uh, you might need a little bit of inert gas boost to flow into your system. Um, generally, since your biomass is so cold and your material material column is also chilled. It's hard to get the flow of butane because of thermodynamics. So you're generally going to use a couple pounds of nitrogen or argon uh, to help push over that entane into your material column. And that's something to always keep aware because at some point you're probably going to have to burp off some of that extra pressure to make sure that you're not overpressurizing or putting too much on your system. Um, so getting the butane over, like I said, you want to do about 10 times the amount of solvent. Um, and then let it soak. I generally let my trim runs soak for about 10 minutes. Uh, a lot of people call me crazy because they are like, oh, I, everything I do comes out black like that. And that's okay um, for them, I guess. But you really want to try to expedite your extraction process. If you have to do three passes at three minutes a pop, why not just do one pass at 10 minutes? Yeah. So that's, that's always my reasoning for doing a little bit longer. Um, I've had companies that I've consulted for say, oh, this is the fourth time we're extracting this biomass. And I'm like, what the hell are you doing? So try to get it all out as fast as possible. I've done um, testing on my biomass before and after the 10 minutes. I'm always below half a percent of any cannabinoid left in my material. And like I said, when you're running so cold with so much butane, you're not picking up any of that color. So you're actually saving your material in the long run. Gotcha. So let it soak. Do your... You can time it however you want. Um, like I said, my SOP is 10 minutes for basic crude. Um, after you let it soak for the 10 minutes, you're going to open up your valve going back. So as you have your collection material, uh, you have a valve on the top of that that you'll open. And then you'll have a valve on your rack that will open. That's basically the hose from your material column into your collection reservoir. And then you open up the valve on the bottom of your material column to release into the collection reservoir. Um, the reason you do this in that order is that way you're not putting stress or pressure on the hose valve fittings as you go into the collection reservoir. 
Um, if you go the opposite way, you may shock your system or pop off a valve or um, even compromise your hose. So you just want to make sure that your valves are open before you start shooting pressure over into them. Gotcha. And if you are shooting pressure into a valve, just make sure that your your valve is ready for it. Um, always check your check valves, your swag lock valves. Um, I've had plenty of them go faulty on me before, um, and it's pretty common. So just make sure that you're always checking your system, making sure it's safe. Always do the the maintenance to keep your operation as safe as possible. That is good advice. Definitely. <laughs> After you collect into your reservoir, this is another thing people don't like about me, and this is another reason why my extracts are generally better than other people's, is I do an extremely low collection time on my reservoir. Um, One reason being I have a really, really strong compressor that allows me to collect the um, fumes at an extremely high rate, even at a lower temperature. So some people may have to adjust this a little bit depending on their time frames and things like that. But I recover at 65 to 70 degrees Fahrenheit. So just about double the boiling point of uh, N-butane. The most volatile terpenes start to become volatile at about 71, 72 degrees. So by recovering at this temperature, I'm actually allowing the terpenes to stay in the extract mixture instead of evaporating off back into the solvent tanks. Running that slow, it can take a little bit of time to recover, uh, depending on your system. Um, for a five-pound system, it should probably take you like an hour. You know, a 40-pound system, it might take you four or five hours. And that's not unheard of for 40-pound systems, even at higher temperatures of uh, solvent recovery. And that's one of those things. I've done a lot of R&D testing at different temperatures, different rates, and in the long run, you're just trying to, you want to make the best product as fast as you can without trying to remediate it, without trying to mess with it 900 times. Um, just do it right the first time and it comes out great. So after you recover, um, this is another time where you can use your pressure gauge to kind of determine how much solvent is left in there. And you can also have, a lot of systems do have a solvent weight underneath their collection reservoir to determine how much solvent is in the system. Um, that way they determine how much is recovering. So depending on what extract you're going for, I generally do a three to one solvent to extract down to a one to one solvent to extract, uh, before I start my pour off. So by that, if you have a pound of solvent, you're going to have that with your extract. So you got to take your five pounds and determine like a 10% extract rate and, do the math, basically determine how much solvent you need left to run your products. Um, every person a little different. Some people like their extract extremely dry. Some people like it extremely wet. Um, this is one of those variables that everyone's just going to have to kind of dial in to determine what gets their consistency that they're looking for. Um, now, when you're saying dry or wet, are you referring to the amount of residual solvent that's remaining in your collection pot? Uh, that hasn't been recovered? Um, more so like the end texture of the product. Um, some people like a dry wax that's easy to touch, handle. Um, they can mess with it. Some people like a battery waxy kind of consistency where you have to have a tool to touch it. It gets stuck on your fingers, but it's a little more turp filled. Um, generally, if you're looking at testing results, if you have like a dry wax, the testing might be in the 
middle 80s to the high 80s. If you get like a super chirpy wax, you're probably looking in the middle 60s to the low 70s. So just depending on what kind of potency you're going for, what kind of flavors you're going for, that's going to kind of determine how much solvent you want to leave into your extract before you pour it off. Gotcha. So uh, are we are we at a point, let's say we're going for a, uh, a little bit wetter of an extract. Um, are we at a point now in this process where we're, it's close to time to pour it off? Generally, yeah. This is the time where it's time to pour it off, uh, like I said. For a crude, I generally leave a very, very small amount of uh, excess solvent in there. Um, for some other products and other textures, you're going to leave excesses, excessive amounts of uh, butane in there. That way you can manipulate it in the long run. But for this one, you want to go down to, you're almost looking like a soup in your collection reservoir. Um, should be nice and syrupy consistency. Um, when you open your collection valve, it shouldn't be shooting off it should be pouring off like a maple syrup out of the bottle gotcha so you you pour it off and uh what comes next after that so this is the part where determining on what you're trying to make is how you go from here well let me let me ask you this then real quick uh for for the sops that you just gave us for the actual extraction portion what concentrates would those sops suffice for you would do that for everything. Okay, so that's your standard. Yeah, that's a standard that's extraction um, SOP um, for getting a nice, clean, crude extract. Um, as far as what you're going for, everything is done post-process. So if you want to make a wax or a shatter, diamonds, isolate, um, batter, sugar sauce, any of those good things, you're going to then take your crude and manipulate the molecules and manipulate the end product into what you want it to be that way you can get it to the consistency and the looks the smells that you're aiming for so getting the crude that's kind of a change in the industry in the last couple of years back in the day was i'm blasting wax or i'm blasting shatter now it's we're blasting crude and we'll figure out what we're going to turn that crude into as we need okay um as we've gotten to the point where we can basically reintroduce solvent as we need and re-manipulate and re-go through. Uh, you had the last week uh, or a couple weeks ago, um, the Media Bros, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. CRC. Um, obviously, you can do so much post-process manipulating with CRCs or, in my case, chromatography columns. Um, there's a lot you can really do. So you're just trying to get the best crude process you can get in the long run. And most of the time when I have my crew tested, it's testing at 78 to almost 90% THCA with seven to 10% terpenes, which when you sound at those embers, you would look at those at any extract on the shelf and be like, all right, well, I want to buy that. Absolutely. It doesn't leave much room for anything else other than uh, cannabinoids and terpenes. Exactly. So and that's the, the goal process of the crew, because after that, like I said, it's just about manipulation. Um, we'll start with just like a basic wax. So as a, a wax or a batter, if you want, um, as you pour it off, depending on what you're doing, if we're doing a wax, I generally do a wide Pyrex pan. That way it has room to kind of expand out across the glass. Um, after your pour off is completely finished, I'll let it generally off gas for about 10 or 15 minutes in my C1D1. Um, depending on your state or your compliance, um, 
you may have to leave it in your C1B1 for a certain amount of time. Like in Colorado, you have to do six hours in your C1B1, regardless of how much solvent is left in there. So that's something to always consider if you're an extractor in the industry versus um, just a craft extractor. Um, but generally 10 to 15 minutes for me, um, from there, I feel pretty safe that I can walk it over to my C1D2 processing fume hood, which if you don't have safe ventilation, do everything in your C1D1, um, obviously never use heat or sparks or anything around that. Um, but pouring off into your Pyrex pan and you're basically just going to start whipping. <laughs> um, you want to get a 316 stainless steel spatula. 316 stainless steel is the highest chemical resistance to nonpolar solvent. So you're basically ensuring that you're not getting metal scrapings or aluminum or any other contaminants into your process as you're actually whipping it. Um, a lot of people I have seen are using drills to whip up their batter and I think it's a really cool process if you get an M1 class drill, which is a either a pneumatic or a explosion-proof drill. Mm -hmm. um, saves you a lot of time and effort on the whipping part, and you can basically set up a pan, pour into a jar, and just put your drill in there and go to town on it. Um, just like candy making, uh, THCA is extremely similar to the sugar molecule. So as you start stretching and pulling, it allows oxygen into itself causing that lighter color, that fluffy color for that wax or that batter. Um, after you start to get that consistency that you're looking for, that color that you're looking for, um, you're pretty much trying to homogenize as best as you can, getting it to one nice consistency. You'll start seeing it separate off if you let it sit, and you just got to go back and re-whip again, let it sit, re-whip again, and that'll generally get you to a nice batter consistency before you go for your final purge um i generally don't use any heat before i go for one final purge that way i'm not destroying any of the terpenes or any of the thca in the process um once i i generally like batter for my extracts i leave it pretty wet throw it in with a very 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 small amount of vacuum um probably five or ten uh negative and basically letting it go for maybe six or seven hours. And people always ask me how I'm passing testing, and it's because solvent, it, it you know, evaporates at 32 degrees for intane. So in the long run, you know, a 75-degree oven is not going to do very much. Yeah, that's what I was about to ask. So you're at 75 degrees for that amount of time? Yeah, 75 degrees for that amount of time. Um, and then generally I'll go back in, whip it one last time and then put it in for another couple hours. Um, depending on, I guess, what kind of consistency you're going for. If you're going for a nice dry kind of crumble, use your pan, um, up the temperature up into the lower eighties and let it sit in there for maybe a couple hours at a time, whip it, put it back in for a couple hours. Um, and it will dry out into a nice crumble. Um. Like I said, I like batter, so I do a lot of mine in jars or other glass that I can have a deeper depth that way is containing more of those terpenes in the lower part. The less access to the surface area, I guess, the more your terpenes will be preserved. Okay, let's say we wanted to take it to a shatter consistency. What would you do about that? So shatter consistency would be very similar um, to the wax consistency. 
uh, line your Pyrex or whatever vessel you're using with either parchment paper or Teflon paper. Um, you're pouring it into there, and unlike the wax, you're going to take this pretty much directly over to your back oven and basically start the muffin process. Uh, in the muffin process, you're going to basically see your extract muffin up um, as the inner parts start to expand and allow that in inner butane to kind of leave the extract. Um, as it muffins up, you're going to basically let it go until you're almost to the walls or to the upper rack above it. Let the vacuum go. It'll drop down on itself. Do that a couple times until it's no longer muffining. Um, at this point, you can leave it in the back for a couple hours, then bring it out of the back, let it cool, uh, flip the slab. A lot of people will put it into a freezer to help cool the slab. Um, it's a good process, but it can cause nucleation on the chatter as you have cold spots in the freezer and it starts cooling inaccurately. So letting it cool naturally on the shelf or on a table is actually a safer way to guarantee a more stable product and less sugaring of your shatter. Um, so let it cool naturally off the oven, flip the product, goes back in the oven, you're going to revac it all the way down. Um, it might muffin up again, and then another couple hours in there. Um, you'll basically start seeing the shatter form large Swiss cheese-like holes across your uh, extract as it actually starts to collect the THC molecules closer together. Um, you might do three or four flips. I've seen some people go for a week on their shatter. My shatter generally takes about three days, um, flipping twice a day every 12 hours. Okay, uh, so moving on from there, uh, we've got some some of these concentrates that are far more liquid, like your your live resins or your sauces and things like that. Uh, talk to us a little bit about those. So your live resin is generally a fresh frozen product. Um, that being said, you have a little bit more excess uh, terpene, a little more excess moisture content in your extract um, than uh, dry material. And that allows you to get a little more of a terpy, wet kind of consistency. Um, the other thing with live resin is most people are pouring with an excess amount of solvent, allowing your extract to basically slowly, very slowly hit that point of uh, completion. Um, instead of forcing it to that point of completion. And that allows uh, separation on your THCA and your terpene content as THCA starts to crystallize, allowing you to get some actual like terpene, high terpene extract uh, consistencies. Okay, well that uh, is a perfect segue into, uh, into diamonds. So let's talk about THCA crystallization. So there's a couple ways to go about THCA crystallization. Um, I'm gonna talk about one basic form of crystallization that is pretty common. You can find it on a future. Um, a lot of people really enjoy it. It's easy to do. It's good for home craft. Um, it's safer than most other forms of crystallization, and that's uh, pentane crystallization. So a lot of the time, you can take your same crude that you took earlier and basically let it slowly evaporate. Um, just let it sit there, and as it sits there, it's going to actually nucleate on itself because the TACA molecules, as the butane leaves, will actually start to collide and nucleate, nucleate and crystallize on the bottom of the jar. Um, this may take a week. It may take two weeks. 
there's techniques and tricks to speed it up that people can look into that are very common. And I suggest that everybody and every person study and read and research as much as they can into the process um, to try to learn how to grasp their SOP the best way. Um, every person has a different process that allows them to utilize their equipment, their space to their um, expertise. So generally with pentane, you're going to take your crude extract that we made earlier, um, same consistency, just like honey. You're going to go into a mason jar, basically, or another sealable vessel, maybe a diamond miner if you uh, want to invest in that. Um, the point of the process is to keep the jar at about 50 to 65 degrees temperature, with just a barely enough space for solvent to slowly leak off. Um, like I said, this might take you a week, it might take you two weeks. You can do things that will expedite your process. Um, I know people like myself and others on Future 4200 are getting isolate within, you know, a couple hours of extract. So depending on what you're doing, you can then isolate your crude. Um, it's going to look really, really gross. Um, it's going to be nice and red from the terpenes and the fats and waxes will separate. And most people are going to be like, you look at that. I would never smoke that. And that's okay. Um, from there, you're basically going to mechanically separate off your THCA from your crude terpene fraction. Um, using a centrifuge, loading up your tubes. Some people are using larger centrifuges with mason jars. Basically spinning off and forcing off uh, through centrifugal force um, all the terpenes, fats, waxes off of your THCA. They'll generally leave you a nice crude isolate that's going to be testing probably 88 to 97%. If you get a really clean separation, you can hit 99.99% uh, isolate, which is always awesome to hit. So if people are pouring it off and not using uh, a centrifuge or not having access to a centrifuge, uh, does that work as well? If you don't have access to a centrifuge, go buy one on Amazon for 120 bucks. <laughs> Good advice. Um, you're, in the long run, you're going to save yourself so much time, money, effort, cussing yourself out for fucking something up, um, time that it's just worth it, even just for a small little desktop centrifuge. Um, they're, they're really, it's it's a definitely worth it tool uh, for a lot of different forms of extraction. Okay. So. Get yourself a centrifuge if you don't have one. If you don't have one and you're just not willing to get one, you can do a cryo wash of your isolate. Um, just don't be mad at me or anyone else when your yields are pretty low. Um, doing a cryo wash, you want to get your solvent down to below negative 40 and basically mix in a one-to-one -one solvent to your THCA isolate and let it soak overnight, and that's a negative 40 freezer. Um, then you're going to decant off the liquid, pour off the liquid, and you should be left with a pretty pretty clean isolate. But like I said, you're going to dissolve some back into that crude, and it's gonna, it's not going to look good. You're going to lose some, some yield. So now you've got uh, THCA isolate, which is a lot of small crystals. What's the, the next step to turn them into those big, beautiful diamonds that everybody likes to show off on Instagram? So you're going to take your THCA isolate um, and reintroduce pentane at a three to one rate. Um, all your isolate may not dissolve at this rate, and that's okay because you're going for a super saturated mother liquid. So 
I choose this rate. A lot of people go four to one to get that full dissolved rate. And then they sit there spending time dissolving down or evaporating off uh, the pentane to get it into that super saturated. So to, to clarify, you're, you're three or four parts uh, pentane to one part isolate. You want to use three parts um, pentane to one part isolate. Copy that. Um, reason being is you're trying to create the most super saturated liquid that you possibly can right off the bat. As you see this, as you're dissolving it, you can actually look into your beaker or your glass, whatever you're dissolving it into, um, and actually watch the THCA start to free flow into the pentane from the bottom. It's actually very beautiful. It's a nice squiggly dance, but that gives you a good indication of super saturation as well. Um, if you're not seeing that, if you're not seeing free floating THCA, you're not at a super saturated point. Um, super saturation is where the solvent has taken in as much possible THCA as it possibly can into itself and other forms, the rest of the THCA then becomes non-miscible with the solvent, non-miscible being it free floats through the solvent. So you can actually watch a THCA flow through your solvent. So it's dissolved as much as it possibly can hold at whatever temperature you're at, and there's still just a little bit hanging out on the uh, on the isolate side. Yeah, you'll generally see a little bit on the isolate side. Um, at this point, I generally rinse through a micron sock, a little rosin sock, just to catch any of the isolates in there. Um, you don't want any nucleation points before you get going or any uh, small nucleation points that might cause you to sugar out. Um, so I'll strain off all the remaining isolate and take my mother liquid. Um, and like, so this is on future 4200, uh, it's hot jar tech and dirty diamond tech. If you guys want to go look at it and find it and see how hundreds of other people have input on this method. But, um, from there, you're basically going to fill your, whatever vessel I suggest people use diamond miners or something that's actually sealable, um, for high pressure. And if you're not going to use any pressure, that's okay. If you want to make pan diamonds, that's a great way to go about it too. Um, regardless of whatever vessel you're going to use, you're going to then put it into your back oven um, at about 90 degrees temperature. Um, no cap, no seal on it or anything like that. Um, you're basically just rising the temperature of the solvent before you actually start the crash. What kind um, of a vacuum are you pulling on this? There's no vacuum uh, initially off the bat. It's just uh, just heating it up to that point. Um, a lot of people will actually not pull what, any back whatsoever when making diamonds in their process because it messes with the boiling points in process. Um, there's safe ways to do it, but I'll kind of explain. Um, once you're going, getting ready to open up your vacuum oven, you want to make sure you off-gas a little bit by turning on your vacuum and just having it all open, um, let it go for a minute or so and push off any of that residual solvent that might be in the vacuum chamber. Most of the time at that temperature, um, it generally flows out naturally. All my back ovens I've ever had are directly uh, connected to my C1D1. So that's a, another good thing and another good tip for people to have. Um, port all your vacuum ovens directly going through your C1D1. Um, 
don't use dual stage or three stage pumps. Use uh, pneumatic pumps or air pumps or something that is actually solvent rated and safe and not going to blow up your house or your lab. Good advice. So um, back out your residual solvent vapor. Um, at, you're going to leave it at about 90 degrees for about an hour and a half um, to get it up to about 80 to 83 degrees. Um, once it's at this point, you're going to go ahead and seal off your diamond miner, your jar if you're using mason jars or whatever vessel you're using. If you're using Pantech, um, you're just going to actually rise the temperature to 95 degrees. Um, and then you're going to leave it in there at 95 degrees, uh, probably for two or three days. And you'll start seeing nucleation and growth within the first day. Um, second day, you'll start to see your puck forming. And this is where a lot of people have differences on what they want to do. Um, a lot of people really like the loose puck that is going around from Diamond Alchemy on IG. Um, so I'm just going to go through kind of what he does. Um, from the puck stance, once your entire bottom is kind of uh, broken off, you can actually open up your vessel. Um, Off-gas it naturally, make sure you're doing it safe. And then you can either use a tool or basically just knock it around a little bit to kind of break down that layer of diamonds. Um, doing that will allow the liquid to reach the bottom end of the diamonds, which will allow for more nucleation points and a faster crystal growth. So by breaking up your puck on the bottom, you're actually allowing for a quicker, cleaner crystal growth than just growing a puck, which a lot of people do. So after a day or two, you'll see your puck form, um, break up your puck, however you feel fit, however you feel safe. Um, and then back in the oven, you know, 95 degrees, um, for another day. And then to finish it off, I generally shoot it up to about a hundred degrees, um, in the final day for another 10 hours or so for just this, uh, crude crystallization. And even though you're using an extremely high isolate percentage, um, for some reason, most mother liquid will not fully crystallize, um, I mean, there's good reasons, uh, the saturation curve and metastable zones. Um, so you're going to be left with a little bit of liquid that you're going to want to pour off before you let it sugar out all over your nice diamonds. So uh, generally when you get down, you'll see the spot where it's starting to form little sugar diamonds and you'll know it's time. Um, pour that off into another vessel and basically let that just sit in the oven until it fully crashes back into sugar and reintroduce that isolate into your next batch. Um, after you pour that off, you'll have a jar full of really nice white clear diamonds. Um, you wanna take those, put them on a tray, um, put them into the bag. A lot of people have different temperatures and they're afraid of decarbing um, THCA. Once it's crystallized, it is extremely stable and less likely to decarb. So you can actually raise your temperature up to about 110 degrees without seeing any real effect on the decarb rate of your diamonds, which allows you to get an extremely strong um, vacuum pole and solvent pole, allowing you to get down usually near zero parts per million, um, sometimes a couple hard, hundred parts per million, depending on how long you back it down. But full vac at 110 degrees for two days, and you should be below the toxic levels of solvent. 
Gotcha. And just to clarify for everybody out there, when we're talking temperatures here, we're talking Celsius, correct? Uh, I generally talk Fahrenheit when I talk uh, on podcasts because most people don't know Celsius. Gotcha. Okay, cool. So we're at 110 Fahrenheit uh, yep. in the in the vacuum oven. Okay, gotcha. Yep. Uh, thank you for clarifying. Yep. So now we've got these diamonds. Um, a lot of times when you see diamonds uh, sold or consumed, they have some sauce with them. So how do we uh, how do we reintroduce uh, you know some terpenes and some uh, some extract back into that? So earlier you separated off via the centrifuge your crude terpene fraction. Um, basically, you're going to do a steam distillation on your crude terpene fraction or a liquid-liquid extraction to clear up all the fats, waxes, colors, and get a more clean isolate version of your terpene profile. Um, generally doing this you're going to take, it's just a secondary process that you'll do right alongside with your crystallization. Um, steam distillation seems to be most people's go-to as far as I can tell. Um, extremely easy setup, uh, set up your boiling flask, set up your collection flask above your boiling flask and a condensing coil and a collection valve and you're collecting terpenes. Um, Boil your water at 180 degrees. It flows up through your crude terpene fraction. Um, a lot of people will actually mix this crude terpene fraction back with some plant material, allowing that steam to rise up through it and just slowly pick off uh, the terpenes. So the more surface area the steam can go through, the faster and cleaner um, extraction you're going to get. So boil off uh, the terpenes. They condense through the coil. They're going to collect at the end. Um, they'll be obviously mixed with water. Since they're not the same uh, polarity, they will be two different fractions. You can decant off the top layer uh, hydrocarbon terpene fraction, and boom, you have very, very clean terpene isolate. All right. So that's what you would mix with your diamonds, or that's what you would mix um, some of your isolate back into to make like a, a something for a cart. Uh, is that accurate? Yeah, um, it's very common for carts. Uh, I see it pretty common as far as the diamonds go as well. Um, a lot of people anymore, instead of doing distillation for their terpene fractions are actually just uh, going through CRC or chromatography in line. Um, that way there's not necessarily as much of a crude fraction coming off of the centrifuge as much as a clean fraction. So if you get the extract nice and clean and your terpenes look good and you're happy with them, you don't need to clean them up off the centrifuge. You can then just reintroduce that back into your diamonds. It just determines and depends on what kind of purity and what kind of look you're going for. Okay, so the CRC will help you get to a cleaner terpene fraction. Right, and the SOP earlier, as long as you're running cold, you may notice that your terpene fraction is just fine and a great color anyway, even without a CRC. Okay, well, that's some, some good info. Uh, so, so most importantly, let's talk about these blue sapphire diamonds. You're going to come off that SOP on the show today, right? Nope, won't talk about them. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think the audience would beat it up or if I didn't at least give it a shot. Uh, if you can't tell us exactly how to make them, uh, let's talk about what they are and what they aren't. I've been kind of following in real time as the extraction world passionately debates your creation here. 
Uh, it's pretty com- controversial and uh, pretty polarizing. There's some, some folks on both sides that are uh, real gung-ho about, about how they feel about it. So I've heard people speculating all kinds of stuff that could cause this blue color. Uh, I'll list a few of them off. So we've got azelene, anthocyanins, salts, metal contamination, crystal structure, co-crystallization, food coloring, and my personal favorite, which is Smurf blood. Um, <laughs> so uh, some of the stuff that I just mentioned is really bad for a human to consume. So let's start there. Are these blue sapphire diamonds safe to consume? Yes, they are generally as safe as any other extract you can consume. Um the reason I say it like that is because generally any extract that you're vaporizing and inhaling is not necessarily safe. So it is safe, as safe. And, you know, when you look at the testing available on them that I put out, um, most other people with their white, clear stone diamonds aren't hitting 99.99%. So that's, that just really tells you about how pure and clean these diamonds actually are. So you had 99.99, huh? Yep. All right, that's fantastic. Yeah. So, is there any anything on that list that I just mentioned uh, that you'd like to tell us that it definitely is or definitely isn't? Tell me, it's Smurf blood. It might be Smurf blood. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> I can tell you, uh, definitely is not metal contaminant, and it's definitely not salt, um, and it's definitely not food dye. It's definitely not azelene, um, and it's not anthocyanins. And if you go and get any of those things and try and make anything with them, just burn it on your banger and see what it like, what it burns like. Um, when you burn down my blue sapphire, they melt clear and completely evaporize and leave no residual. When you burn regular diamonds, they leave a little bit of residual. And if you burn any of those other things I just said, you just ruined your banger, probably your bomb. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Well, yeah, there was uh, in the beginning, there was very, very heavily debated. And, you know, I think a, a big a big part of it uh, was sending it out to a few of the trusted folks on future and having them say, yeah, it's clean. Kind of kind of worked uh, in your favor in that respect. Definitely. Um, nowadays, it's turned into a little bit more of a, more of a game, it seems, where there's a bunch of people trying to figure out how the hell you did it, and uh, and you're in there on the on the forums chiming in here and there. It's been it's been entertaining to watch. So yeah, props for uh, for for the way you you've handled it. Appreciate it. <laughs> um, I definitely enjoyed having a bunch of the higher level me- uh, community members on forty two hundred. Um, try them and give them their passing, you know, they're okay. They don't come out blue. They don't turn things blue. You can put them in terpenes. You can put them in distillate. You can put them in whatever you want. The blue doesn't come off. You can crush them up. They crush up white. Um, they melt clear. They don't taste bad. They, I mean, it's, it's been a nice to see the continued support from some of the higher ups and even some of the guys who are, you know, kind of, on the other side of the aspect and not happy about it. Um, there's always going to be those kind of people in the world. There's always going to be that. And that just means you're going and doing something right because you're doing something that they can't. Absolutely. And you're doing something that's getting some notoriety and some attention. Um, so how'd you cope with the idea for making these things? Was it something where you set out to say, I'm going to make blue diamonds? Was it intentional or was it a great mistake? How did it come about? Um, 
as I told you, I was uh, in extracts a little early um, age. So I was uh, experiencing around some of the older OGs who were never going to be in the cannabis markets on the big scene. Um, there was a guy back in 2011, 2012, um, who was hanging out with my brothers and he was doing blue and red distillate, um, like red, like rosé, pink distillate. Um, and talking with him back in the day, he gave me a term that he was using that stuck with me all these years of how he actually was able to achieve those things without using food coloring or azeline or any of these other products. He was just naturally turning these products, these colors, um, through a organic chemistry process. So several years later, as I started going through high school, going through college, um, I remember this term that he used and I was like, all right, well, I'm, I'm ready to, to implement it. So I looked into the term and it didn't exist. It wasn't a real term. Um, <laughs> he was just uh, full of it, but it did exist on a micro scale. It just wasn't the term he used. So I was able to locate exactly the science that he was using, the organic chemistry that he was using, um, and started implementing that alongside my crystallization. Uh, it was intentional. I was trying to make uh, colored diamonds because I just saw that there was nothing really happening in the industry. Everyone was chasing diamonds and this and that. I can make diamonds. Um, I had just finished making my Quick Crash Boulder Tech um, and pretty much just ready to start doing more R&D. Um, very, very quickly, I had success on it as far as uh, trying. My very first success was actually the pink diamonds um, versus the blue. Um it gave me the ideas and the concepts that I actually start trying other colors and different techniques to utilize other colors. And kind of just from there, I knew I had something that was going to be revolutionary in the industry because no one else was even thinking about doing anything else yet. During, uh, during your explanation there, you mentioned uh, while you were going to college, did you go to school for something related to this field? Um, I went to school for synthetic and analytical pharmacology. Oh man, that's a that's a big deal. I think we uh, maybe I'll edit that back into the the beginning section about how you got into all this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, just just happened to leave that one out. <laughs> all right, so so back to the blue diamonds. Uh, you're trying to make this product. You've got some ideas. You're doing some R and D. What was it like the first time you reach into a jar and fished out a blue, and you knew that you'd done it? Uh it was extreme success. Um, I've been paying for all the R&D myself. I've been doing all the experimentation by myself in my clandestine lab at home. I had basically, I was a part of a startup that I started um, in Colorado. And we were having issues with the partners. Like I mentioned earlier, having partners and investors can kind of get weary on you. And uh, I knew I needed something to push me and keep me on focus beyond that. So I started doing the R&D at home, started doing all this research at home. Um, I finished that and I called those guys. And I was like, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> Don't need you. <laughs> and they were uh, obviously a little salty, but in the long run, it all turned out fine. Um, they're doing great now and still all good with between us. But 
I saw that and I was like, I've, I'm ready to, to build and start my own thing, uh, go my own direction. Yeah, absolutely. It seems like it's been uh, it's been been working out for you. So, were you expecting when you when you put this picture out on uh, on the internet? Uh, were you expecting this crazy response that you got from it? Definitely. Um, <laughs> so, I had teased very slightly. Um, my very first success was a couple years ago for like colored diamonds in general, and I wasn't necessarily trying back then, and. I knew from then, um, all my friends basically told every person that they could tell. And around uh, Denver, basically, it was a little pseudo-legend about Little Billy Blue Diamonds. Because um, I was selling them on the traditional market out here back in the day. And it was uh, it was very cool. Um, very interesting to be part of uh, that aspect of things. Yeah, it's got to be a little bit weird going from kind of a low-key extractor, especially if you're doing things a little bit underground, uh, to a name that's basically known throughout the industry at this point. What's that been like? Um, it's something I, like, as much as I want to step off the high horse for it, it's something I've known I was going to be at eventually in this industry. Um, a little bit more about how I got into this industry versus how I got started in extraction. Um Basically, end of 2019, uh, as COVID started coming in, uh, I had my own healthcare business, my own respite care, in-home hospice care. Um, and obviously, COVID took old people and people who have uh, diseases first. So my business hit a wall and I had to file bankruptcy. Um, and from there, I, like I said, I had the chance to do the startup in Colorado and the second I got in the industry and started talking to some of these other guys, um, I had consulted and done things like that. But once I actually saw like what a day-to-day lab was being run like, I was like, all right, well, it's time to take this shit over. <laughs> well, congratulations, sir. It looks like you're well in process to do so. It's interesting. I never, so I never necessarily wanted any of the like notoriety or anything like that. My original goal, I had people who had, money who I could sell these SOPs to. Um, a lot of people still give me shit because I've sold my SOPs for high six figures. And a lot of people don't understand how or why I'm doing it like that. Um, and I think that's where a lot of the misconception kind of comes about where it's, if you have something, know what it's valued at and sell it for what you think it's worth. And that being said, that kind of pushed the this asshole is trying to sell fucking SOPs for $125,000. And that it was kind of like a joke, like, Oh, what's this guy got? And it pushed the form to kind of push into me and it helped the form basically helped me build myself up in that aspect. As far as the notoriety and the clout, um, some of the pseudo fame that's been pushed my way. Um, I would have done everything behind doors and kind of secretly secretively in the long run if I had been my choice, but people saw that shit was happening and new things were coming and they were, they were skeptical at first. And now you see where it's at. It's well, how is he doing it now? We have to figure it out. And it's been, it's been extremely cool. Yeah. All the haters kind of helped you in building that notoriety because that's what started all of this, like this very polarized debate, which, you know, I mean, it's one of the, the highest commented on uh, threads on future is uh, it's Will Billy Tech, duh. 
And uh, yeah, it's it's uh, a <laughs> it's it's entirely entertaining to read uh, all of the different vantage points. But um, so I was going to ask you earlier, what are you doing to take advantage of the notoriety? It sounds like you're you're selling SOPs for uh, for for a high ticket. But uh, are you what else are you doing? Um, basically, with the notoriety and the fame that's kind of come with it, it's given me the opportunity to expand on that. Um, originally being an extractor, just having the product was cool. Now it's kind of developed into more of a, a brand type ability or possibility, um, to actually brand out a willbilly extract concentrate package, willbilly extract, uh, edibles and get into the space as my own. This is what I'm offering to you guys instead of why well, work for these guys or I partner with those guys. Yeah, that's fantastic. I'm looking forward to see the quality that comes from somebody who's known for quality and for their attention to detail, being able to be at at the helm of their own brand. That's that's something that's super exciting to me. Definitely. I know when I was running an ethanol facility that I was always at, kind of at odds with uh, with the folks that were more involved on the money side of things, and I just wanted to make you know the best product that I could make. You know, obviously there's a trade off somewhere, but it, you just get to kind of control your own destiny, and that's that's fantastic. Right, that's uh, pretty much what I've been going for the whole time. Um, between the startup out here in Colorado. And then moving out into Michigan and teaming up with uh, Fuego and Blaze Canna, I've had my my fill of other people's input and wanting to run crude factories. I want to run a, a real concentrate lab. Um, and that's something I'm extremely excited and thankful for. Um, if I had done things a little differently, if I had given in and sold my SOPs for you know, less or shorthanded myself in the long run, I wouldn't have given myself this opportunity. And that's something that this industry and the future guys really like help build in me is that, uh, stick, stick your ground, stand your ground, um, you know, fight for your place in this industry. You can go and read across the forums and talk to so many people who are just getting screwed in this industry, screwed in this industry, that's another thing I'm excited about being able to help change um, the guys I'm bringing on. I'm bringing them on under extremely new uh, ideas and styles of employment, giving them crazy different options and profit sharing options. Um, I'm trying to build up the community while I build up myself as well. And I'm, it, having the ability to do it from the top is extremely exciting. Yeah, well, more power to you, man. Take the ball and run with it. Uh, just to uh, to wrap things up a little bit here, what's your personal favorite craft concentrate that you make that you like to enjoy? That's a tough one. I love almost all extracts in the long run. Um, I would think it'd have to be ultra-refined rosin. So using hydrocarbons, um, using some of the techniques I mentioned earlier, you can actually press out some rosin. Um, some lower grade rosin and then refine it using hydrocarbons into some of the greatest tasting, best tasting, strongest extracts you'll ever see. Um, you'll never see this on the market. You'll never see it available anywhere in the world unless you're doing it yourself because it's such a low yield. It costs so much money, but the, the greatest is a ultra refined hydrocarbon rosin. Nice. All right. I'll uh, look forward to seeing that someday. You got to make friends with the right people, right? 
<laughs> um, if you just if you make rosin and you gotta got the time, there's never a bad time to refine. <laughs> All right. So uh, another question for you: well, What are you personally most excited about regarding the future of the extraction industry? Um, technology is what excites me the most about it. Um, basically as more and more people will start utilizing these advanced techniques, more and more people are starting to realize that these people need an easier way to do it. And I, I love that. I mean, I, I came from open blasting and glass tubes and mixing in a aluminum bowl with ethanol and trim, um, to fully closed loop systems and chromatography units, uh, all this crazy machinery, these memory skids, these CRCs, um, it has made extraction so easy, but there, there is a bad and a, a downside to this. It's made it so easy that people are becoming lazy at extraction and just using the machines to do all the hard work. And something I tell all my guys and every person I've ever trained, any consult I've ever been out to, the machines will by itself make great product. Now, if you can make great product without that machine, imagine how good it's going to be. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. It's exciting to see what, what people are coming up with. Definitely. Any, uh, any great aspirations for, for putting your brand onto, uh, any kind of equipment or, uh, anything like that? So Will Billy is, um, actually going to be a multi spot, um, kind of company. Um, we're getting into both equipment production and extraction and lab build outs. So people who are needing new equipment designed, um, things like that, will actually have the ability to go in custom design uh, inline chromatography skids, um, which are very different than a CRC skid, which is a super, super basic um, color removal, uh, pigmentation removal, fat and wax removal, versus like a chromatography skid, which you'd actually be able to fraction off like your terpene fraction, your THCA fraction, your minor cannabinoid fraction. Um, into their own separate without having to go into post-processing. So that's what we're getting ready to start designing and working on in the next year is uh, inline uh, chromatography units. Well, that's great, man. Congratulations on all the, uh, on the newfound success and uh, of, of getting where you wanted to be. Uh, what, uh, what's the best way people can get a hold of you? So website's coming. Um, Thewillbilly.com is under design right now. Um, it should be available by the end of the month. You can check out my Instagram, the Willbilly Tech. Um, you can get on Future4200. I'm the Willbilly, or you can just email me at thewillbilly.com at yahoo.com. As long as you don't forget the Willbilly, I think you're good to go. Well, uh, yeah, Willbilly, thanks for coming on the Mountain Extractor. Definitely, man. Appreciate you having me on. Um, appreciate you talking with me and going over some of the finer parts. Absolutely. I think the audience has been waiting a long time to hear some of these SOPs and who better to hear it from than you. All right. Thanks again to Will Billy for joining us today. If you want to reach out about his consulting services or just follow along as he pioneers his way through our industry, you can find him on Instagram at Will Billy Tech. That's at W-I-L-L-B-I-L-L-Y-T-E-K or on future4200 at thewillbilly, or email him, thewillbilly at yahoo.com. Also, stay tuned for his fancy new website, www.thewillbilly.com, coming at us by the end of June. 
As I mentioned last week, I recently partnered up with another great resource for extraction education, Mace Media Group. They publish Extraction Magazine and Terpenes and Testing Magazine, which are full of relevant extraction info, but they also host one of my absolute favorite conferences ever, the Extraction Expo. This year's Extraction Expo is coming up September 30th and October 1st at the LAX Marriott in LA. It's the only trade show or conference completely dedicated to extraction. All of the exhibitors are pertinent to the extraction business, and all of the speakers and panel discussions are interesting and targeted at us. It's the best networking and educational event specific to our industry, and the Modern Extractor is now the official podcast sponsor. I'll be there with a booth, interviewing exhibitors, speakers, and interesting guests, handing out swag, and doing my Modern Extractor thing to cover the latest and greatest in the industry. So if you come to the expo, come find me at the Modern Extractor booth and shake my hand. Hopefully I'll see you all there. So this brings us to the end of season two. Thank you all for accompanying me on another trip through a lab. I'm going to take a few weeks to record some of the great guests I've been lining up, and I'll be back at it before you know it with season three. Moving forward, I plan to open up the format of the show a bit. It will be less of a step-by-step walk through a lab and more coverage of all the awesome things that are happening in the world of extraction and cannabis lab science. Our industry is pioneering its way through uncharted territory, and there are big advances being made every week. The rigid structure of the show was great for people learning and improving their processes, but at times it kept me from giving you guys the great cutting-edge information that didn't fit into this rigid format. So now that we're all on the same page, I invite you to join me in exploring the latest and greatest that the extraction and lab science world has to offer. In season three, I've got plans to cover CO2 and solventless extraction. We'll dive deep into terpenes, remediation, Delta-8 and other isomers, biosynthesis, more high-tech aftermarket gear you can add to your machines, and I'll have the ability to pivot and cover something that's cutting edge as soon as I learn about it. As always, if you want to hear about something specific in season three, now's the time to let me know. Email me, jason at modernextractor.com. Make sure to follow the show on Instagram at the underscore modern underscore extractor. If you guys like the show, please subscribe and give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. The more subscribers and better reviews we get, the better guests I can book for you here in the future. Those reviews will help me expand the reach the show has, which just may help me negotiate some killer discounts on equipment and lab supplies for you, the ModX listeners. A big thanks to Isada Venegas for handling business on the show's social media, and a shout out to the new fools for bringing the funk to the Mod X theme song. Thanks again to everybody for tuning into the Modern Extractor. I'll be back before you know it. I'm Jason Showered. Let's talk soon.